Sunshine, blue skies, please go away. A girl has found another and gone away. With her went my future. My life is filled with gloom. So day after day, I stay locked up in my room. I know to you, it might sound strange, but I wish it would rain. All right, welcome back to the Philip K. Dick Book Club. In this episode, we'll be looking at the short story, The Builder. But first, I'd like to, uh, I got some comments to respond to. Um, so if you, any of you ever have comments or thoughts, you can leave them on, I think you can leave them on iTunes, you can leave them on the main Podbean account, or you can just send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. So these comments are from Richard. Um, in fact, I, I've conversed with Richard previously when I was writing these up uh, on my blog. Um, and, you know, this is a kind of a continuation of some of the conversations we're having back then. So so Richard's a, an old friend of, of my work here. Um, so... This is, he may have left a lot of comments throughout the Philip Kiddick Book Club episodes, and I'm not going to be able to respond to all of them, but there, there's, there's a couple that are, that are a bit related, so I'm going to highlight those. So um, here's what he said about The Impossible Planet. He said, in my original comment on your own blog, I said that Dick is beginning to develop some of his most elegant themes, in this case, the unreliability of historical fact and memory without which you can't be sure of your own identity. The point of the old woman's quest is so she can discover her true identity without which she's confused and facing an existential crisis. It seems that only her death could bring her peace, though. I think the coin discovered at the end of the piece, however, is more than just a gimmick you imply it to be. As in much of his work, nothing is as it seems, and there's no reason to assume that the world is the old earth just because the artifact found, which could be fake. I think he was trying to titillate our curiosity rather than just provide a sensational ending to the mystery. Um, so, I agree. Um, in fact, the television show the, the, that just came out doesn't make the planet they go to Earth at all. There's no implication that it is Earth. So, um, And in fact, they focus so much on kind of this false experience of tourism in the TV show. And I think that's something that's not in the original story so much. But it's true, certainly when you go to places and you find a, a relic, you know, the salesperson may say, this is from ancient Rome or something. In fact, it's just made in a factory somewhere, right? That certainly is part of our experience as we travel. And if we don't have a grounding to our past, we, you know, this artifact really is just dead material. So in that, I certainly agree. Um, though the bigger issue here, and this is what I'm going to talk more about with some of his other comments is 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 history false is it falsifiable and of course it is uh, of course history is falsifiable all the time and you know anyone who lives in a nation state essentially was taught a falsified history right that's part of what nations do in public education is they teach you a history and that history is presented as true, but actually it's something that's often constructed to reinforce the ideology or the values or the identity of, of the nation state, which usually comes from somewhere else, right? The good example of this is, you know, my people were German. They came over to the United States in the 1870s or so, after the Civil War anyways. 
yet when I go to school, I learn about George Washington. I learn about the founders and the British Empire and all that stuff, which really doesn't have relation to the story of my people, right? But as part of the American nation, I get I got to accept this history. So that's a false history in a way, at least related to myself and my identity. Yet I, I take it in. And we do this all the time in 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 nations. So yeah, history is falsifiable. But I don't think a false, and this is maybe where I might disagree a little bit with, with Philip Dick. I don't think a false history does much to our identity. In fact, false history seems to be what creates our identity. The idea that there's some true identity underneath all our masks that we need to some, somehow get to is not something I generally hold to. So, yeah, it might be that in the, in the story, this woman needs to find Earth to somehow bring closure to her life. But I don't think that's how most of us interact with the past. In fact, we actively create false paths for ourselves all the time, just in a way to stay sane, right? It just um, I remember talking about this, so maybe it was in a different episode. Every time we we reimagine our the past of our relationships, that's something where we are constantly falsifying our pasts is in our relationships where we say, well, you know, she What's the example I'm looking for? Like maybe you cheated on someone important to you and they're going to break up and you're fighting over it. And then you, you tell yourself that it was justifiable because you were emotionally neglected, right? Or, or he wasn't doing enough around the house or, or he was working too much, right? So we, we create self-justifications and that becomes part of our past and it becomes true almost, right? I'm sure many of us could pass lie detector tests on things that on some level we know to be false because it just becomes so important to our, our identity and who we are. Um, so that's kind of my feeling about the falsified past. Of course, these will be issues that will come up with the man in the high castle, um, the maze of death, uh, and a few other important works where the past is being being falsified. And in fact, Dick was dealing with this very early on in his career. And in some ways, even stability could be read as, read as a story of a, of a false past. Okay, so he made another comment about frontier, and this was on my episode on the Philip K. Dick's philosophy of history. And he asks, is history false? This is still Richard. Is history false? Is memory misleading and unreliable? The apparent reality of dominion by Axis forces in the man of the high castle is in fact false. Well, wait a second. I don't know if that's true. I, I mean, I don't necessarily think the grasshopper lives heavy is the true history. But anyways going on. Um, if our memory of what is supposed to be recorded historical events can't be trusted, how can we be certain of our cultural heritage and identity? In The Man in High Castle, only spiritual revelations can bring us the reality of historical truth. The disillusionment with the frontier can perhaps be healed by the salvation of spiritual enlightenment. So, and then he, I, I make a response and then he replies again, in the case of the man in the high castle, it is the extant novel, The Grasshopper Lives Heavy, but it doesn't dispel the virus of their condition, though, when the truth is revealed. In the maze of death, the dream of the frontier is already history. Stagnation and it has indeed set in. Here it seems, as I've said, only spiritual experience can bring salvation. Um, yeah, I, I think the important thing to do when we look at Dick's philosophy of history, and this is what I want to try to do as I fill in more of this this interpretation is see Dick's career as as historical. So when I wrote that essay and I, you know, when I was dealing with that episode, I mostly wanted to focus on his early work. 
his work from the early 50s, uh, really up until, I think, time out of joint. And I, I do agree things change about his view of history. Certainly, Man in High Castle with presenting the false history is a change in some ways. It's a significant kind of um, focus on the idea of a false past. That's different than the issue of the frontier, it seems to me. The f I do think that in the mid-50s and even into the late 50s, Dick believed a frontier is necessary for cultural revival and even survival, right? A story like Mr. Spaceship or The Variable Man or The World That Jones Made doesn't work, or even Solar Lottery doesn't work without this frontier component to it, right? Or maybe they're not necessary, but Dick puts them in anyways as essential parts. Like you could have told the story of the man who the world Jones made without all the frontier stuff, um, but he puts it in there because it's really important to him, right? It could have just been a story about Hitler, right? And, you know, someone who's able to take power because they can see the future a little bit. But, you know, he puts this frontier stuff in that story and some others really consciously. And to, to just read back Dick's career from The Maze of Death or Vallis or even The Three Stigmata of Homer Eldridge where the frontier becomes more stagnant and already decadent and not really empowering in any way, you can't, doesn't mean you can ignore what he said earlier on. I, I'm also imagining that sometime when he was writing Martian Time Slip, he changed his mind about the frontier. And I don't know why or what happened, but that's really a turning point for me. So I, I think if you look at Dick's career kind of chronologically, work by work, the way I'm doing in this podcast, you can see how his views on this um, change a little bit. Again, on memories being false and unreliable and misleading, I, I think all history is that way to some degree. And I, I'm a historian. That, that's, that's well, I don't make much money from it now, but that, that's in theory my bread and butter. But I really don't see um, a true past out there. I think all history is interpretation. Yeah, we can agree on certain facts that happened in the past, but what we make of those facts is always a matter of memory and values interpretation, opinion, politics, right? And then much of the history we get is something constructed by people in power to reinforce certain values. Now, his point, only spiritual revelation can bring us the reality of historical truth. Yeah, I think that's the case in The Man in the High Castle in a few of the works, like The Maze of Death too. You have this idea of you need some kind of spiritual revival. I, I Here I want to step away from Dick a little bit. I just think... Any idea that there's an authentic past is is a little bit silly. Um, but anyways, uh, thanks so much, Richard, for, for leaving some comments. Um, so anyone else who wants to ha have me engage with their ideas, please do so. I'm sure I'm missing a lot in these works. And there's, you know, I look at it a certain way. And that doesn't mean other ways of looking at these stories are wrong. I just sometimes I'm missing them. So that's why I really want to have people's comments and, and a little bit more of a community here where we can we can share ideas so again thanks richard for that um, so the builder uh, the story i want to look at today is the builder um, the builder was first published in amazing so that's a big sale um, it's in its december january 1953-1954 issue so this apparently was a pretty big month for for philip dick I'm publishing a lot in in this end of 53, early 54. Um, it's It currently rests in volume one of Paycheck and Other Classic Stories by Philip K. Dick, the first volume of the collected stories of Philip Dick. 
Speaking of that, I was at the bookstore in Taiwan the other day, and I actually saw the new edition of the volume three of the collected stories for sale, the Minority Report. And um, you know, it's some, it's not always easy to get cheap, good English literature, you know, English language literature. I mean, here, um, like people here really like Jane Austen, and you can always get Jane Austen or something like that. But um, you know, sometimes you have to search around to find other things. Um, Philip Dick is pretty rare here at bookstores. Sometimes you can find one or two books, like usually a copy of Man in High Castle or or Scanner Darkly or something, but usually not much more than that. But I did see the Minority Report book. Um, I'm assuming we're going to see a lot of Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep too, because whenever a movie comes out, you get the the movie tie-ins. But anyways, not not Volume One. This is in Volume One. So what goes on this plot? This this story is not very dense. It's, it's kind of like it's either a story about Noah or it's a story about mental illness again. And this way, it's kind of like King of the Elves, where if you read it honestly and matter-of-factly, it's a story about the supernatural and fantasy. But, it, you know, it's pretty clear if you get to the subtext that you're talking about uh, a form of mental illness. So our character is Ernst Elwood. Uh, he's looking out the window, distracted, and his wife Liz scolds him for his indifference. And once again, we have a family life that's shaped by indifference and hostility and just this kind of apparent dysfunction of marital life. She urges him to eat his lamb liver as a good example to their son, little Toddy, which seems pretty horrible to me. Why anyone would want to do that? But again, like the relationship to the kid is like, you have to eat your liver, right? Well, who, who says that to their kid if they don't want to torture them, right? I mean, there's plenty of good things that aren't liver, but here they're making him eat his liver. I never had to do that as a kid. My, my dad used to eat like liver and onions, but I, I thankfully avoided that. Anyways, after Ernst begins eating, their other son, Bob, reports that the atomic bomb drill at school went off. He also shows off what he knows about the newest atomic weapons and their power. Ernst is apparently disgusted by this conversation and walks out. Bob believes that his father's strange attitude is a result of war psychosis. So we learn that he was in a war, that Ernst was in a war. And that's one reason he's kind of off looking at places. He's, a, he's shell-shocked, essentially. Or he has PTSD, I guess is what we'd say now. But we also have here this this kind of the normalization of the nuclear threat that Bob does these atomic drills like it's no thing. And he knows about these bombs and, and, and how they work. You know, sometimes kids might know about weapons, guns and things and be able to report about that. But to know all these details about nuclear bombs shows a lot about what they're learning in school, perhaps, or what popular culture is teaching these characters. Well, Ernst walks to the garage and he looks upon his project, which is a large boat. He works on it whenever he has free time from either his work or his family, and he's very, very proud of it. Uh, his neighbor, Joe Hunt, comes to visit and comments on, on his distraction. And that's how he sees it. He sees this project as a distraction, like maybe someone working on a, a classic car or someone doing models or, or just working on furniture. You know, people always have these distractions from work, family. And the issue here, I think, is the third space. Um, we prob As a historian, I want to say we had a third space in the past uh, 200 years ago. You know, the place that's not family or work. You know, a, a well-developed third place. You know, community centers, bowling leagues, football leagues, soccer leagues, all that kind of stuff. 
um, coaching kids soccer, all, you know, things that I remember growing up even in, in the 70s and 80s is still pretty vibrant. But we seem to have lost a lot of that third space. So people have to find hobbies to fill up a lot of their time. And, you know, a lot of energy and money is spent on, on this. You know, people even like will color now, you know, coloring books just to fill up this time in the day or to, to de-stress from work and, and family troubles. But he's building a boat, right? Hunt jokes. His friend Hunt jokes about how absurd it is, but he's not really judging so much. He's, you know, he, he's, I, everyone knows what Ernst has, has been through, so no one's really actively judging him. But Liz reclaims Ernst for the household, and Joe's left thinking about how strange Ernst has, has become in recent, recent time. So next scene, we're in Ernst's workplace cafeteria, and it's alive with conversation. The chatter ranges from racist comments to talking about pretty girls. Sometimes you have fear of communist infiltration in the government, and sometimes they're talking about baseball. So we got a nice little image of work conversation, right? Um, now, I've had jobs, but I never really did the 9 to 5 very well, you know, and I didn't know how important it was to, like, watch certain shows or watch certain games or be able to talk about things like this with my my coworkers. But it's an it seems to be an important part, right? You know, if you don't watch the right TV show, you're kind of out out in the corner at in the cafeteria the next day at work. Well, there's one worker, Jack, invites Ernst over for poker and a stag party. Um, but he leaves the cafeteria without a firm commitment. Um, just kind of going through his life the way he has been. He walks home, passing various sites of small town America. We see a television shop, jewelry stores, women's clothing stores. So we get a nice snapshot of kind of suburban life and consumer culture. And after the walk, he arrives home and he announces that he's taken a leave day at work. He's just walked out of work. Liz is dismayed at, at this. And the fact that he goes to work on the boat dismays her more that he seems to have taken a day off of work, a leave day just to work on his boat. But he insists that the work is almost done. He says he likes to work on it. And Liz says she plans to call a psychiatrist to treat Ernst's growing mental illness. And as I, as I said, he's basically got PTSD from uh, some war event. It's not really ever explained. When Liz leaves Ernst to his work, Toddy shows up uh, to help with the final stages of the construction. Later, Bobby bikes past with some junior high school friends. He boasts to them that his father is building a nuclear-powered sub, not a wooden boat. The neighbor, Joe Hunt, points out that there's no power supply, no sails, or no motor, only the boat. Only at the end of this construction does Ernst realize the absurdity of the project. How can you build a, you know, what kind of sea craft has no sails, no motor, and no power supply? Well, an ark, right? An ark is just something um, that just floats uh, on a river. Right, just to wait out the rains. And then the final scene is great black, quote, great black drops of rain, end quote, begin to fall. And Ernst at that moment understands the purpose of the boat. All right, so um, analysis of this story. Uh, certainly we have the Noah's Ark story, right? The two sons, the, the wife, the man going off to build the ark. But it's very ambiguous in this form. I, I don't think we're meant to to come out of this story thinking that really God told him to build this ark, right? Now, the great black drops of rain might be signs of nuclear war. I don't know. Um, 
it's strongly hinted throughout the story that the world is close to war, is near war. So the idea of protecting oneself from war to ride it out in some way is not absurd. Of course, you would expect then bomb shelters. In fact, if you want to retell Noah's Ark's story for our age, it should be a bomb shelter, right? Anyways, um, reminders about this fact that war might be coming seem to bother Ernst greatly. When he hears about that, he doesn't want to talk about it. He served in the Second World War, so he came back from this traumatized. And that's part of the reason he doesn't want to think about war or talk about it. And he's upset when his son talks about weapons. Now, it may be a great flood again. Maybe God is trying to destroy the earth with another flood. We only see rain. I mean, it might just be rain came through, right? And this is a break in Ernst's kind of psychosis. When you know, But it might have just been an afternoon rainstorm. We, we don't really know. We, we, the story cuts off, right, when the rain starts. Now, the other thing is Ernst could be completely insane or completely delusional by this point. And the rainstorm is just his delusional you know, explanation for why he's acting this way, why he's doing these queer things. But the most likely interpretation I think we're supposed to get away from this is that the greater purpose here is merely in his head. And it's the result of his mental illness brought on by his experiences in World War II. Now, we, we, there's, been, there's a lot of talk about, or there has been a lot of, there was a lot, we got to be historically, there was a lot of concern about shell shock, PTSD, you know, mental traumas after the Vietnam War, right? And many people came back from the war with that. It, there wasn't as much of this after World War I and World War II, right? This was, there wasn't as much treatment available. Now, certainly, and I write about this a little bit in the Philip K. Dick book I wrote, uh, Philip K. Dick in the world we live in. How after World War II, there were some psychiatrists who started to study PTSD among war veterans. And this actually fed into some of the developments of psychotropic drugs and things. Um, and psych psychiatry was becoming increasingly interested in this. And the point, the, re the historical significance of this is people realized that things could happen to you externally that would break your mind, that would just, you know, harm you psychologically. Before this, people thought it was all internal. It's in your upbringing, right? And this is like the Freudian model, that mental illness is a reflection of your inner experiences or your hidden feelings and emotions and things that happen to you, right? Or there's an internal struggle between the id and the ego and the superego and all that stuff. But what World War II seemed to prove is that someone could go into the war sane and come out of it, I don't want to say insane, but certainly traumatized emotionally and mentally, that to the point that maybe can't function as well as they used to be able to. Right. So it's the idea is that the conditions can create your 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 mental state. Right. And this leads to a whole bunch of work by people who started to say the problem with mental illness is not some internal biological or, or emotional thing. It's really the world we live in. The world makes us sick. And I, this is something Dick believes in. I, I, I really want to say that. Um, he hasn't really written at this point in this read through much on mental illness. He has the story. Um, the, the elves one, the, the king of the elves in this one. But it's not something really focused on. But it's going to be one of the major pillars of Dick's uh, writing. It's going to be mental illness. He's wrote a whole book about it called The Clans of the Elfane Moon. And it seems to me Dick's of the opinion that mental illness is a product of a sick society. Anyways. Where... 
Okay, another thing. Um, Dick may be playing here with the tendency of suburban American men to pursue personal projects in their gar garages or basements, often to the bewilderment of families and neighbors. And I, I think this is a common experience. You know, we might see our neighbor doing something weird and we're like, well, what's that? Why does he need those tools? Or, yeah, they maybe he comes and borrows a tool and then you find out what he's using it for and it, it's a bit weird. Now, Ernst's largest motivation through this story is not to save the world or anything or to ride out a, a war or a flood. It seems simply to escape the banality of family life and workplace conversations and a population of people who don't really understand him and what he went through in the war. The boat was simply a way for him to create a space for himself free of his family. He brings the young and more innocent Toddy into the project. Toddy copies what his father does, and for this he's earned the love of his father. Um, so, so I guess he's Shem. Toddy is Shem, and the older son is Ham, I suppose, if you want to take the Noah's Ark allegory more seriously. But his wife and his older son both have their own lives, you know, either in school or, or just their homemaking and they're less interesting to him it's it's toddy he really puts his fo emotional focus into and maybe that's easier for someone who is facing you know a ptsd maybe it's easier to be around younger children than older people and their more complex problems i don't know i have actually no knowledge on on actual psych on ptsd and in, in actual fact and just some of its cultural representations perhaps but not more than that. So if you know anything about this, let me, you know, let me know. But in this way, Ernst is also an emasculated patriarch. He's mocked by his neighbors. Uh, he's condemned by his wife constantly. His older son doesn't respect him. In fact, his older son is ashamed and he lies about what his father's doing to uh, impress his peers. Right? And, you know, I think most of us have probably done that from time to time. Tweet, you know, lied a little bit about our parents' war experiences or what job they do or what work they do. You know, just, you know, cause kids, kids put a lot of faith and a lot of their honor and identity is in their parents. And so they, they might lie a little bit about what they do. Here we have the older son doing that. Most of the conversations that are taking place around Ernst are odious to him and to us as the reader. His son fetishizes weapons of mass destruction. His co-workers talk about seducing young girls. They brag about their youth while insulting their manner of speaking. They're racist as well. One person fears that black people move into her community. His wife constantly nags him and threatens to have him institutionalized. Now, on the side, that may be something this character actually needs. He needs help, but he's not getting it from anyone around him. I'm not sure throwing him in the bedlam would, would help, but he certainly seems to be someone who needs to deal with his his war experiences. He's even bothered by the queer commercialism of the town streets, and he has many reasons to seek solitude. Given this context, the twist ending is less significant than the social world Dick describes in the earlier pages. In fact, if you take out the last sentence, this short story is barely science fiction. It's really a critique of suburban and small town life, and it, that's there from the earliest part of his stories. It's even part of Rugue. And the builder, I think, is best read as part of, of that tradition. Um, a few more issues here. Um, I think the most important is, is the hinting at white flight. Um, a big part of the so-called urban crisis of the post-World War II era is, is white flight. Now, 
During the Great Migration of World War I and the Second Great Migration of World War II, many blacks from the South moved to cities for following job opportunities, right? Immigration from Europe was cut off, and of course, by World War II, you had anti-immigration laws on the books. But this created a lot of opportunities for, for Southern blacks, uh, partially ones that were fleeing Jim Crow or trying to escape from you know, poor agricultural conditions to get good factory jobs, sometimes even union jobs, although not always but certainly more high paid than what they were getting on the farms. Anyways, what this did is it created these um, African-American urban communities in many American cities. And I guess the Harlem Renaissance is really this reflection of it. I, I did a whole series in my main podcast on the Harlem Renaissance. So you can go listen to those if you're interested in this at all. But from Phil K. Dick's point of view, what's going on is this white flight. Now, white flight or basically the urban crisis had many dimensions. One was banking policies that made it harder for black people to buy homes in good neighborhoods. Part of it was community associations that actively tried to keep black renters or homeowners out of their neighborhoods. And there were signs and protests about black people moving in. Or sometimes you just had white flight where whites would leave communities as they became more African-American. The result of this, of course, became a much more segregated uh, nation in the North or the South that was segregated for a long time by law, but it made northern cities much more segregated, and it created a great urban inequality, right? And this was even had corresponding ramifications in funding, where, you know, cities made decisions about where to put money or where to put roads or parks or invest money. You know, eventually it, they went to the more affluent communities, and poor African-American communities got left behind. And this exacerbated, and, and we're still living with the consequences of, of these decisions made in the 50s and 60s. It's directly referenced in this story, so I think it's important to point out. And we've seen other stories like Martians Come in Clouds or The Hanging Stranger that deal in a very subtextual way, maybe in The Hanging Stranger less subtextual, but certainly in the Martians come in clouds, it's, it's more hidden, about racial politics. Um, I can't think of any work that I want to say is like Dick coming out to be a, you know, a racial writer. There's not, I mean, there's James P. Crow and, and a couple other stories that maybe fit that, but, you know, so I'll, I'll think about this. But he's not really seen as a writer on racial politics. But he is in a lot of ways. In a lot of stories, it comes off. But it's not, it's always obliquely or, or hidden in the conversations or the context. So I, I think it's an important part of his work. And, you know, it's maybe uh, in a book on Philip K. Dick's career, we should maybe talk about race as, as one pillar of his of his worldview. Um, so I think that's, that's it. Um, so it's a it's a fun little story, and I I think nowadays with our growing awareness about PTSD, I think is an important story to to read. And we we have a new generation of soldiers coming back from war, many needing mental health care. Um, so you know, it's it's an important story for that reason. Well, thanks so much for listening. Um, if you have any comments, please leave them. I'll try to respond to at least some of them. If you leave a lot, I, I'm not going to respond to all of them. But if you give me an email, that's best. Give me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com, and I will respond. Well, that's it. Thanks so much for listening. I'll be back in a little bit with another story uh, by Philip K. Dick. Jesus, Jesus.
Lord knows that a man ain't supposed to cry. Listen, I gotta cry, cause crying is... 